Hello and welcome to the next episode of Lost in Criterion. I'm John Patrick Oatari Dorgan, and with me, as always, is a man who's a collector of fine poisons and dangerous elixirs. <laughs> I am the Adam Glass, and I like to mail those to my good friends who are dating people who <laughs> look just like overseas. me. Overseas. Overseas. Adam, I don't think this is important for the podcast itself, necessarily, yeah. but it's a thing I wanted to get off my chest right at the beginning. We don't see him die. Um, I would like to because the movie one of the the other character proposes the possibility that this is just a drug yeah and all we see is a guy who's having trouble breathing and sweating a lot a thing that like are we it's possible he just sent him like peyote or something (laughs) so like his sister shoots herself and he's just tripping bad right um we don't know that that didn't happen, is what to, I'm saying. To be fair, in the source material, he rather explicitly dies because the emotional impact of the ending of the uh, story that it's based off of is his death, not hers. Um, for for reasons we can get into with Cocteau later. Uh, right. But, but I but, mean, I'm just saying, film-wise, we don't, we don't know he's die. dead. He could just be tripping balls. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. And I just uh, needed to get that off my chest right at the beginning because you, I couldn't think of anything else. Are you saying you want me to mail you drugs? That No, because I do not want to go to jail for like 10 years. Good. It's very important that you never do that to me, Adam. Uh, I'm not sure that it, just mailing it to me would cause oh. that to happen, but I can't afford to take the risk. In a country get that it, puts Pat. people in jail for marijuana I possession for 10 years. I mail you drugs. <laughs> I feel like you're winking. Please stop winking. I would I'm never I'm not physically wink. present with you. But <laughs> oh, God. Oh, no. I can't escape now. Well, I guess I'm going to go. I better go say bye to my family. <laughs> Before we get into the movie this week, I want to talk about our Patreon, patreon.com slash lost in criterion. If you want to support us, keep us going. Uh, we'd love a little, a little help out there. Uh, you can go yeah, over there do. for just a dollar a month, despite the fact that Patreon wants me to do, eliminate a dollar tier completely. Uh, we're still going. So I say it. join a dollar and say fuck yeah. you to Patreon. <laughs> there you go. Um, for just a dollar a month, you get access to bonus episodes. You get to vote on what movie we're going to watch for those bonus episodes. They are always non-Criterion films, uh, but there's a real eclectic mix over there. Possibly more eclectic than the actual Criterion collection. Which is very, frankly, is, very hard to believe. <laughs> yes, a very eclectic collection to begin with. Uh, we've watched movies like Ready Player One and Dog Day Afternoon and Ernest Goes to Camp and uh, Will Ferrell's Kicking and Screaming and Critters 2. Uh, just, uh, yeah, we have a lot of yeah. fun over there. Um, well, and sometimes 80%, 80% fun. Sometimes, sometimes, you sometimes watch it really is just a bad movie podcast. And, uh, the criterion collection has not primed us, uh, no, for how to do uh, a prim- bad movie podcast the, anymore. Yeah. So. Like number one, we've never been interested in doing that. 
Right. Number two, when it does happen, it's an accident, and we wish it didn't happen. Right. Right. Like, I don't want to watch Kicking and Screaming and then talk about it. I even listen to bad movie podcasts sometimes. I'm just yeah. not prepared to be one. Right. Right. Uh, but yeah, for a dollar a month, you get access to that entire back catalog of episodes. I think there's 32 right now, um, and uh, and most of them are pretty fun. We always have fun, whether or not we enjoy. Well, the yeah, movie. I mean, I try. But, yeah, uh, I mean, uh, just some movies make it very hard. Right, and that is Patreon.com/slash Lost in Criterion. We do have a couple tiers above that. For five dollars a month, uh, we uh, we just like to thank those people on air. It's uh, literally the tier is called "Hear Someone Say Your Name." So here's me yeah, saying the names: yeah. Christopher Otto and Adam Speakerman. Uh, thank you so much for your five dollars supports. A little above that, we do something really special. $10 a month and above, those folks uh, not only get thanked on there, thank you Jason Westover and Michael McGrath, but also uh, Pat makes a piece of art based on one of the movies we've watched recently. I get that printed up on a postcard and send thank you notes uh, with that postcard. (laughs) Based on is in scare quotes, let's be very clear. (laughs) It is uh, conceptually based on. Pat's conceptually based on, and they are wonderful. I am so glad that they exist. Uh, But yeah, thank you I'm I'm just glad that somebody pays to make me do art once a month because I, I... even if I'm not doing a very good job, yeah. it's something I enjoy. And having somebody like having it be a thing that I'm essentially—I don't want to use the word forced, but like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, there's a there's a schedule that I need to follow. Right, is really nice because sometimes it, you know, in my previous life prior to doing this, I would go in fits and starts, right, where I would get an idea and then like sometimes I just didn't personally have the motivation to do it. Whereas this is sort of the opposite. It's like one of those like Inktober type challenges where it's like I just have to do it. Like, whether or not I'm really deeply inspired or not, it just has to happen, and I, I really am grateful for that. Like, thank you for paying to make me do that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, again, patreon.com slash lost in criterion if you want to get involved, too. And thanks to everyone who is. <laughs> and get essentially visually harassed. <laughs> that <laughs> is sometimes. kind of what it is. Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes. It just depends on how I'm feeling that month. Yeah. <laughs> this week... We are talking about two of our least favorite French film directors. God. Uh, speaking of bad movie be, podcasts. Wait, Adam, what if that's the whole episode? <laughs> what if it's just me making that? We do the whole Patreon thing, and there's just me making that noise, and then it cuts. It can't the be podcast that podcast is like 15, 16 we minutes have to, long or something We have like to that. contextualize that. Oh, God. All right, I guess All so. right. <laughs> We are talking about Les Enfants Terribles uh, from 1950, The Terrible Children. It is directed by Jean-Pierre Melville, and it is based on a short story by Jean Cocteau. Uh, Cocteau also wrote the screenplay. Cocteau also was on set. Cocteau also at one point called Cut, and Melville (laughs) threw him (laughs) off of set. (laughs) Just totally lost his fucking shit. Yes. I get that. I get where that comes from. Like, what the fuck do you think you're doing? Yeah. Uh, oh boy. Ooh. Uh, That's good in, to know. Um, thank you. Thank you for saving that until we actually record it. In Melville on <sighs> Melville, which is Melville's like autobiography, um, he says that Cocteau hoped 
Melville would die during shooting so that Cocteau could simply take over the film. Oh, my God. Uh, In the end... Cocteau's screenplay turned out to be an almost literal transcription of his book. This is according to the Criterion essay, uh, which describes oh, Melville's transposition as architectural, musical, uh, and to some extent a matter of casting. Uh, what that means. Musical, Cocteau wanted to use a jazz uh, accompaniment, whereas like, of what we also get is some Baroque music. Um. Uh, what else? Bach and Vivaldi we get, um, which I think is one thing that really works here, though I, I imagine jazz would have worked here too. Um, yeah, but I, I don't know. I don't know that that's true because, yeah. I mean, as much as this, in as much as this works, jazz would have like somehow reached extra levels of bougie <laughs> pretentiousness I that I don't know that yeah. like, I don't know that I personally could have handled <laughs> Um, uh, architectural, obviously, it's Melville's visual style here, um, and I think that's it. Uh, at the some extent of casting, uh, what that is in reference to is that uh, uh, Edward Dermott as Paul, the, uh, I believe, then 28-year-old playing a high schooler, uh, was on Cocteau's insistence, and I think uh, I think in allowing for that, Melville sort of got free reign to pick everyone else who is also in their mid to late twenties. But right, uh, but yeah, um, Cocteau wanted something visually imposing as Paul. Uh, Paul draws on the why? character. Can I ask why? <laughs> Here's why. The character that throws the snowball that injures Paul yes, is named Dargelos. Yes. Dargelos, if you recall, I uh, you won't, is also the name of a character in one of the Cock 2 films we watched uh, in which uh, he throws a snowball and, with a rock inside and kills someone. That sounds vaguely familiar. Yeah. But I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to try to keep up with the Cocteau verse. That's fine. That's fine. Uh, <clears throat> Dargelos is a school crush that Cocteau had, who was a bit of a jock. Uh, and Cocteau wanted to immortalize him. So uh, Paul, wanting to be a physically imposing pan- man, uh, is part of the Jar- Dargelos aspect. It's it's the sort of guy Cocteau liked. Is is basically what it boils down to. Oh, okay. Whereas whereas the Dargelos in this film is not a physically imposing person, and that is part of part of Melville's uh, influence here. I think, um, where it is, uh, Dargelos is played by Rene Cosima, who also plays Agath, uh, and you know. Therefore, is a attractive young woman uh, disguised as a boy, and the only, and therefore the only student at that school who actually looks like a teenage boy because he right right because he is played by a twenty four year old woman, <laughs> right. But yeah, uh, believe it or not, getting kicked off set is not the piece of information 
I alluded to before we started recording. Oh, okay. That I was saving for the recording. Thank you. Here is, here is the thing. Melville, famously, in our work with Melville, we have yet... We haven't really liked a lot of Melville, haven't connected a lot with Melville. But one thing yeah. we know about Melville is his connection to the French underground, right? The uh, the resistance. Right. Uh, well, we kind of know. Right? We have right, we had right. some we've we've discussed about that, about that. <laughs> uh, and we yeah yeah, um, and whether or not Melville maybe made all of that up, uh, that might come into play here. The uh, the Criterion essay offhandedly refers to this being a surprising collaboration between the resistance of Melville and the collabo Jean Cocteau. Jean Cocteau was tried for collaboration I, with the have Nazis. Have we talked about that before? I don't know. I don't remember talking about this before, but that the fact that you, you seem like it's vaguely familiar. Uh, Jean Cocteau described his... Uh, uh, I'm sorry. Biographer James S. Williams had described Cocteau's politics as naturally right-leaning, which is on his Wikipedia page, so maybe maybe we had you had read that before. Uh, during Nazi-occupied France, Cocteau's friend Arno Brecker convinced him that Adolf Hitler was a pacifist, and a patron what? of the arts with France's best interests in mind. Adolf Hitler, who had just conquered France yeah. after conquering Keep in other mind. countries. With... He's a pacifist. Uh, in his diary, Cocteau accused France of disrespect towards Hitler and speculated on uh, Hitler's sexuality. Uh, and then uh, praised Brecker's work publicly. Um, which caused him, which is what he was eventually charged for collaboration for, is that he publicly praised Brecker's work, and Brecker was uh, obviously, uh, he's a German architect, but he was also, he was a Nazi. He was, he was, he was a Nazi sculptor, really, ultimately. Uh, so yeah, that's where, where Brecker's collaboration, or where, where Cocteau's collaboration claims come into play. Uh, but yeah, he was tried for collaboration. Um, Melville, I don't know, man. If if I were in Melville's <laughs> shoes, I don't think I'd want to work at all with somebody where there was any stench of Nazism on. No, him. no, yeah, and that's what makes it. This, it's very yeah. weird. This is yeah. all very weird. And that's why I was saving this for the podcast. Is that I think that's very weird. Uh, yeah, I mean. I... Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't want to spend a lot of time on yeah. Melville, but like every time we hear more stuff, Melville's participation in the underground gets more and more, yeah, <laughs> sketchy. <laughs> yeah, sketchy and kind of like, oh, yeah. something doesn't feel right here. Right. Um. Another thing, as far as Cocteau being, uh, right wing, I think it's. It's very interesting to me that that you know, given given Cocteau's work in the '30s that we've seen, Beauty and the Beast, and uh, or was that, you know, Beauty and the Beast was Cocteau, wasn't it? I don't know that that's true. Oh yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah that's it is. right. Sorry, yeah. like that's that's a long time ago. Beauty. Uh, well, we watched uh, all the Cocteau. We were front loaded with Cocteau for some reason. 
Um, right. Yeah, I just Beauty and the Beast is one I don't remember very yeah. well, other than just me not caring for it. <laughs> remember served? Yeah. That's about yeah. all I can recall of it. Um So Cocktoo's it's very artistic, surrealist work. And um Orpheus, uh, the whole Orpheus trilogy we watched. Um and that's its own it's very it's something, right? <laughs> yes. And to be right wing and producing something like that. It's it's the same surprise I have when I learn that uh Dolly is right wing too. Right. right. Yeah, no, I, I yeah, we all whenever you find out that like a creative person like right. per, intensely creative person is right wing, it's always yeah. kind of a shock. Someone who is and, famous for throwing off the shackles of artistic expression. Right. Also yes. likes authoritarianism <laughs> is 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 very weird. I, yeah. Like I totally I go through the same thing. You it's it's true whenever you find out like a musician or somebody is is right right wing and you're like how how do those things jive? Like how do you go I want to go out there and really express myself, but also I want that person over there to fucking not express themselves. Right. At all. Right. Right. How do you get down to that? And I don't, you know, maybe Maybe Cocktoo's belief that uh, um, Hitler was a patron of the arts means he doesn't think that there's being eh, there's artistic suppression within Nazi Germany. Right. I mean, an important thing to keep in mind that we we often forget is there's one factor that we fail to take into account a lot when we have these discussions, and that's stupidity. <laughs> it is possibly it's possible to be very creative and also stupid as shit. Yeah, like those things are not. We like to think that creative types are intelligent, yeah, because uh, it sort of jive, it sort of matches with like what we think of in the world. Yeah. But like, you can be very creative and also just right, just a total lug when it comes to intelligence. Like, yeah, so you like can be creative, but also not really comprehending the world as it actually is is a possibility, right? Yeah. Fair, fair. Yeah, Blood of the Poet is is by the way the movie I was thinking of where where the other character kills somebody with a with a uh, snowball. Um, okay, and that was from that was from 1930. Uh, Orpheus was made just the year before this, and the Testament of Orpheus, which is the one uh, <clears throat> with Picasso in it, uh, is from 1949 or 1959. Um, which I only mentioned for the context of it's it's the time you realize that uh, Picasso was alive. In, in oh, the I know, and it's century. and it's still to this day like right. Right. is mind altering. You're like, wait, what? Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, it's. Just, oh, I remember Blood of the Poet. Oh, I remember yeah. this. Yeah, Blood of the oh, Poet yeah. was a fascinating piece of. Yeah, work. it was. Um, very disjointed in what it was doing i i think too but but yeah so just i don't know just melville as the uh the french resistance filmmaker that he purports to be and then making a film in 1949 or 1950 uh with someone who had the stench of a collaboration trial on him even even as iffy as the charges actually are, this is still a guy who at least privately praised Hitler 
uh, right, yeah. Regardless of the collaboration charges, like you know yeah. that this person leaned towards Nazism. Like you right. know that. Right. Like even if he wasn't actually a collaborator, you know what I mean? Yeah. Maybe you know because again, pr- writing a book, a, a thing praising a like a German artist, that that is a pretty iffy, yeah, kind of thing to to bring somebody up on charges for. But like, still, this guy definitely liked Nazis. Yeah. Well, Brecker Brecker also maybe wasn't just a German artist. He was kind of the no, no. I know. I'm sorry. That was a sort of that is that is a that is a misphrase. My point was is that like I can see an argument that that's the way Cocteau comprehended him is like yeah. Again, we're we're working with the possibility that Cocteau might not be very smart. Right. 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 Okay. Like we're working in a in a specific universe where like maybe Cocteau's not so bright. And like, just conceives him like I mean, like I he's my you know again it's you get into a very weird territory. It's like being friends with a person who's definitely a Nazi is, you know, right? Basically, makes you a Nazi too, right? Like I don't know. It's right. Right. I don't want to worry about Cocktu anymore. I kind of am already tired of thinking about it. <laughs> like, uh, I'm already well, kind of worn out. Well, he is also the narrator of this film, so uh, he's he's with us. Through yes. through here. Yes, he is. Um, but yeah. Yeah, what it, this movie needs, lots and lots of fucking narration. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> like, the, the narration, like, for real, though, are you on board with me? The narration is extraneous, right? Yes. It's like, it's just not doing anything. Like, right. it's there, and then, like, we just see the thing on the screen. Right. Or it sets up in a thing that, like, they could have, like, you get into that old saying, like, I guess Cocteau just doesn't believe in that phrase, like, show, don't tell. Yeah. Like, don't tell me about what happened. Just, like, show it to me on the screen. You gotta, you've got a movie here. Right. Why are you reading me your book? The the first one where he's, where uh, or an early one where he's describing that there's, uh, they have no nudity taboo between them. She's getting undressed in the room, and he doesn't react. We already know that. Right, yeah, we get so, it. Like, we know. Like, why are you doing this? Yeah, we think it's weird, too, Cocteau. You never actually say it's weird. <laughs> so, we think it's weird. I think you think it's cool. <laughs> which frankly. is fine. think it's cool. But he also doesn't tell us he thinks it's cool, right? So No, yeah, it's just like, I'm going to... Again, Cocteau, as far as I can tell, wanted to make a book on tape. <laughs> that really... Well... He he wanted he had denied people trying to make a film of this because he wrote it as a novel and he said it exists as a novel and it should it should only exist as a novel. Uh, And he might have been working on another version of it uh, as a play and maybe a play could have gotten filmed. Uh, He he wrote a play called The Terrible Parents. Well, that that eventually became a film anyway, right? That became like he eventually a film, made that into a which film, he was yeah. okay with it be, with that becoming a film because it was a play to begin with, and that's not a leap. But the novel to film leap was too much, uh, and lots of objectors were interested in making a film version of this. John Huston was interested in making a film version of this, and uh, Cocteau said no. And then Cocteau saw Melville's, uh, I believe, first feature, uh, "The Silence of the Sea." Uh, which I can't remember the French title of. Uh, I, well, I sil- certainly don't know. The Silence de la Mar. It's, yeah, it's not very far away. Uh, and Melville, or Cocteau, 
absolutely loved uh, The Silence de Lamar and then said, well, Melville could maybe make my movie, but also <laughs> but also pretty clearly thought the way he was involved that Melville was someone he could browbeat into doing what he wanted to do right? <laughs> with some amount of artistic integrity uh, to the final product still existing. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, so basically Cocteau commissioned him to make this movie and then wouldn't leave the set. <laughs> right. Yeah. Became uh, some sort of monster parent of, of filmmaking. Yes. yes. He's like, I'm here now. <laughs> this is my movie. Yeah. Uh, part of, part of Cocteau wishing that Melville would die might be, uh, might be echoed in the actual filming process because Cocteau did have to step in to direct the car accident scene uh, because Melville was sick that day. <laughs> what I have a question. Was Melville sick or did Melville call in sick? Because it kind of <laughs> feels like looking at what I saw there, I yeah. would call in sick too. Melville also claims that for that particular sequence, Cocteau followed his directing instructions to the letter. That's so, unfortunate because that sequence yeah. is terrible. That right. might be the worst thing in this right. entire film, right. Right. like which is saying something. But like it's bad. Like yeah. I, I know for a fact I have seen that sequence in hundreds of TV shows. <laughs> right, right, right. And bad movies. Like that's a isn't that like that's essentially a trope of a bad of a bad yeah. movie, right? Like yeah. the oh he had a car crash and then one wheel since they're spinning. It's like right, right. I don't think Cocteau invented that. <laughs> I refuse to believe that's true. <laughs> right. That everybody right. saw this movie and was like, ah, brilliance. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> right. Right. Just so, that's so cheesy. I just hated it. Like, I, I knew, because luckily, thank God, he told me about it before he showed it to me. Because <laughs> otherwise I would not have been prepared. Uh, and, like... I'm sitting there, and I'm like, he tells me about it, and I'm like, oh, God, this? Really? Really? No. Just no. Yeah. Um, Throughout its history, this movie has been more associated with Cock 2 than with Melville. Uh, Melville apparently does not like to talk about this movie. I can't imagine why. <laughs> I can't imagine why. Uh, I will say there there are aspects in this film that I very much like. And most of them are cinematographical. <laughs> okay, I can I can buy into that. Uh, the way I, I don't I don't know that I agree a hundred percent, but I can at least see it. The way the mansion is shot, and and that whole uh, that gallery space that Paul moves into and builds his own little curtain fort of a bedroom in, um, I sort of like the way that plays out. I mean, uh, I think the idea conceptually is interesting to look is like yeah. to think about. I think that like the shooting, like I, I don't, lo I personally don't love the cinematography in this movie. Yeah, uh, I think the way it treats large spaces feels very weird. I don't well, like I, the fact that like. Go ahead. We didn't talk last week about the claustrophobia inherent to the way it's shot as well. Uh, but that that's sort of one area where this this follows suit is that it feels claustrophobic and is claustrophobic. And it's a film that largely, like last week, takes place inside a series of small rooms. Right. Right. But like, whereas this 
Whereas the movie last week takes advantage of that and and feels makes that feel that's very human. Yeah. I don't I don't know. Nothing they all seem like human. play set pieces. Yeah. Like every every place we're in feels like a play set. Yeah. Like you know like ah I've now we've rolled in the bedroom set. And then in the next scene, we'll have the other set. And it's like, I don't, that doesn't We're like, we're just shooting on a sound stage and there's no That's what, well, it, And the well, gallery think, essentially functions as a sound stage. To, I think, I think worse than a sound too. stage, yeah. though, honestly, because even worse than a sound stage, it feels like, you know how in, um, what's it, High and Low, we talked about the fact that Kurosawa very much frames it as a play. Yeah. The camera angle's kind of fixed, yeah. taking in the whole space. This feels like the bad version of that to me. Where I feel like our camera, to a certain extent, a lot of times, not all the time, but often enough, feels like it's showing me the what it's like to look at a play. Yeah. Like, especially when they position Paul on the bed and they're showing you the other bed. And it's like, this doesn't feel organic at all. Uh, in high and low or something like that, it works to its advantage because it, it, it creates this sort of drama where things can be happening in multiple locations at the same time and they're all interesting and, and, and they, they come to points where they meet and things like that. This doesn't feel that way to me uh, at all. And then when you combine that with this desire to every so often do a pulled out shot of just showing us the gallery, which also for some reason feels very weird like that's the framing of the gallery shots from above feel kind of sad to me yeah i feel like i'm watching security camera footage <laughs> yeah i don't know i i i, I don't want to like go I, I i always feel bad when i go like really negative but like i found visually this movie to be very unsatisfying it may not help that I literally just watched one of the greatest movies I've ever seen in my entire oh, life. Right, right. The, like two days before. But like that's them's the breaks, Criterion yeah. Collection. Well You did this to yourself. Perhaps a weird thing then is that the cinematographer here, uh, Henri Decas, uh became somewhat of an icon of the new wave. He okay. shot the four hundred blows. Which uh, is amazing. Which is a like visually amazing. Fundamentally movie. amazing. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, he shot a lot for Melville, including the Samurai and Bob Le Flambeur that we've seen, um, which, which are visually interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. He also shot for Male uh, and Franju. Um, I don't know what films in particular. I don't have that in front of me. Um, so he's he's. Sh- been cinematographer for stuff that we know is very good, right? Right. Um, <clears throat> not as good as last week, but still very good. <laughs> but but good. I mean, no, I I would you know, Four Hundred Blows is a pretty visually pretty good movie. Right. Like, right. It's it's up there. It's it's Absolutely. not just story wise good. It is visually right interesting, like engaging. Right. 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 That's weird. But you know what? I think that that points out a very interesting phenomenon, right? Which is like the the interplay between director and cinematographer is really, really important. Yeah. Like if you're a cinematographer and you're getting 
maybe not great direction with regards to what you, they want this or not clear direction about what you want they want the movie to look like right that's going to have an effect and i wonder if the two voices right there's a power struggle to, happening on set right means that the cinematographer can't get a good that would explain especially when you consider Cocteau's sort of design like kind of direct engagement with the theater means that he's sort of conceiving of this movie as a play which gives you sort of those sort of theater set piece type moments and on top of that melville being a younger guy who obviously has artistic merit uh the silence of the sea is well received and it's why cocktoo wants him to make this film but cocktoo is an older filmmaker he's been making movies since the 20s and he uh is on set all the time. <laughs> right. It's important, yeah, it's important yeah. to keep in mind that, like, yeah, Melville does not have a lot of films under his belt. He's right. got Silence of the Sea and then that's a short his only film. Feature. And that's yeah, it. Right. Like, he's probably really, really super malleable. Right. Or, or Cock like, 2 thought he would be super right. malleable. But even if he's not, like, that, that interplay is going to mess with your cinematography. It's going to mess with everything, right? Right. Like, if you can't, like, if nobody knows who's in charge of a movie, that's not a great position to be in. Like, movies generally don't function on some weird sort of, like, well, there's six people in charge. I mean, they they can and they do, but they're yeah. pretty bad. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. That's what we call executive meddling. Um, right. So, yeah, maybe the failure here is... <clears throat> Cock to, but but I think part of the failure with Cock to is fidelity to his own source material too. Oh yeah, for sure. No, I would. Yeah, yeah. But that's always going to be a problem, right? Like of him wanting wanting it to shoot as a visual one, novel. What? <laughs> right. Yeah, wanting to make your well, and there, and that's why you don't see that very often, right? You don't see like a lot of like novelists who made a movie of their novel as a thing, right? Because I think. It's not hard to recognize, like, oh, I should probably, like, let this other person take over or else I'm just – I can't separate myself from this. The, like, it's not possible. The films that come to mind are that I I at least more enjoy movies based on Stephen King works where Stephen King is not involved with the production. Right. <clears throat> and I feel like the ones he's closer involved with the production – are worse, but they also have much lower budgets. So <laughs> there's that too. Right. Yeah, it's hard to tell on those, right? Yeah. Like that's a that's always a Yeah. Who knows what, what the origin of that is. But yeah, no, I, I I feel like you can sort of start to see the grains of where this all kind of like maybe went a little wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Um I I and I feel like the narration is like the honestly is the hallmark of that. Like Basically, reading me your book in the movie of your book seems like the clearest indicator of maybe the author shouldn't be on set. And having the author play the narrator, too, right? Right. Well, I feel like maybe, like, when you think about the sort of, the the sort of, like, logical thought process that goes into there, if the author's on set and won't give up, like, you can kind of feel it as a sort of like a series of concessions, right? Right. 
Where it's like, fine, but like, then you just do it. Like, maybe Cocktoo shows up one day, like, having already recorded the narration kind of thing, right? Like, um, okay, as a man who's watched a probably inordinate number of home improvement shows, <laughs> um, honestly, if I'm being serious about this, um, a thing that happens, especially in the ones that are sort of like more uh, small team based rather than like, you're, um, you're, um, this old houses don't suffer from this problem, okay? Because they are a whole production, right? Um, but when you're looking at your, you know, your your property brothers and some of those kind of things, right? The 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 people who for whom the house is being built often show up and just introduce random ass elements that are not part of the plan, and a lot of times they've already committed to those elements, yeah. Like without any conversation with the person who's actually essentially the director of the house yes you know what i mean like the you know the 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 general contractor is actually the person building the house right like he's got the plans and then (laughs) dude just shows up with like i bought this on ebay can you include this giant bronze elephant statue in your design (laughs) like and he can't the, the, the guy can't say no because the statue's just there you kind of wonder, like, I get that kind of impression from this where it's like, well, I already I already did the narration, so just put it in. Like, I don't know. It, it, it feels, the, there's a lot of very disjointed elements in this right, film. Right, right. Uh, the Criterion essay with this one is written by Gary Indiana, and his closing paragraph is uh, interesting in that he praises this movie for perhaps the exact same reasons we are currently dogging on it. Okay. Uh, the whole paragraph quote. Cocteau is a poet of myth and the rounded completion of the imaginary. Melville is a poet of intricate schemes running to quick ruin upon contact with reality. In Les Enfants Terribles, these two modes of poetry merge into a hybrid something else. Unrepeatable and unforgettable. I don't know that it's unforgettable, and I feel like I'm going to forget this one pretty quick. Oh yeah, no, I I was going to make a joke because yeah. um, I've eaten a lot of things, yeah, in my life that tasted very bad, yeah, and were unforgettable, <laughs> yeah, uh, and that didn't wasn't necessarily a good thing. Also, I. Legitimately, okay, like, we're talking about Melville and, like, intricate plans and stuff. The shooting of the scene where she, okay, I don't remember any of the characters' names. I'm sorry. Uh, (laughs) The sister is Elizabeth. Elizabeth, okay. Where Elizabeth is trying to sabotage this relationship. Film-wise, shot pretty good. Yeah. Uh, It feels fairly, you, you get that weird turning in your stomach where you feel you watch this plot coming together and it's bad and it makes you unhappy and upset. It works. And then there's a narration over it, Adam. Yeah. Unnecessary, painful narration that essentially ruins whatever positive elements the director managed to put into it via their own style and skill. And and get that... ruined by a person sort of bad film noiring the whole thing. I wonder how involved Cocteau was with the editing process because that feels like maybe Cocteau undermining what's actually working with, uh, with Melville's. Yeah, I stuff. would. I think so. 
I mean, because like that shot, like generally that the shooting of that section works very well. Right. It is probably the most interesting part of the entire film. Right. Uh, it feels different. It feels more dynamic. It doesn't feel like set pieces in a in a play. It feels good. Right. And then there's narration over it for some yeah. unknown reason. What I feel with with Indiana's quote here is, if Melville's poetry is of inc- intricate schemes running, uh, <laughs> running to quick ruin when they hit reality, and that's that's true of other Melville films we've seen, um, right. I mean, we've seen like, but but the, that is that is a poetry of plot, yes. and that plot does exist in the novel this is based on, right? Um, where Cocteau's more imaginary surrealism, uh, better world or what he wants to be a better world, and Cocteau is you know he's a gay man living in the mid twentieth century, like he's. <laughs> He can dream of a better world that's more sexually free, yeah, uh, right. and that's fine for him to do, and good for him to do. And I wish he didn't have to dream it. Um, but also, as a French artist, he didn't really have to dream it all that often. Too uh, the pushback from social norms is something maybe Cocteau didn't hit all that often. Um, but he also lived during Nazi-occupied France, which is. A different animal. But, but, okay, but yeah, we're going to spiral out of control because, again, right, also right. big fan of, like, kind of fan of the Nazis. Very confusing. Yeah. Anyway, uh, all that to say, I don't know. I don't know if this really becomes a hybrid of those two styles, except in what I alluded to in the introduction of of the ending, where the original ending focuses on Paul and it focuses on Paul because of Cocteau's focus on Paul as a character on uh right on his Dargelos crush coming to a visual fruition here uh whereas Melville's ending focuses on Elizabeth's self-imposed comeuppance right where she's she's meddled and that meddling has caused the death of her one desire, uh, really. And well, yeah, she I mean, kills herself. Well, yeah, and then like also one of the sort of ta- points that things that talks about though that that the, her death is complicated in the sense that like also like how it interplays with the sort of game they've been playing the whole time about like being like they're they're sort of like the weird rivalry that they have going yeah. on where it's like. I've got to be the first one to die is a weird thing, <laughs> yeah. but like it definitely is a thing in this film. Uh, um, yeah. I mean, yeah, I think it's, it is interesting that that change at the end there is interesting, but then again, like it's very hard to tell with this movie, like whether or not that was a collaboration or just them sort of doing the same thing that those two characters are doing to each other throughout. You know what I mean? Like, Who's who's got the reins at any given time seems to be actually an important thing. Yeah, in this film, and it just feels like well, maybe Melville sees the reins there at the very end of the movie, you right. know. And the fact that Melville doesn't like to talk about this movie suggests that the more time goes on, the more he realizes he didn't have uh, the reins 
as much as right. maybe he thought he did in the moment. I I would think that that I think that makes a lot of sense. Like you don't you don't ignore films that you've made. I think unless there's some impetus to do so, and like sometimes that's it just being a bad movie or something like that. But like yeah. I don't get the impression that people regard this as a bad movie. No, certainly um, not. So what that makes me think is like then not feeling like it actually belongs to you. Right. right. Would be the other thing. And especially since people generally sort of regard it with uh, primarily as a cock to work in a lot of ways, I right. think that probably plays into that, right? Like, oh, like even other people have noticed that like I wasn't really in charge. Right. And the 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 big open spaces of that big house and the gallery and the what we talked about of it being like a, a stage staging of this stuff. That's that's more true to Cocteau than to Melville. Right. right. Yeah, no, it, it reminds me of things like Orpheus and things like that right. more than it reminds me. Uh, right. It reminds me of yeah. the house in Beauty and the Beast very much. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, without, I forgot without about the that, overtly surrealist elements of human hands. Right as candelabras <laughs> right and living furniture but, but true and that and that's why i think it's really when you talk about like who's in charge in any given moment it's important because like again for example the scene where the plot is coming into existence doesn't feel like that you know what i mean like when she's running around doing that the feel is pretty different than when it's like pulled back and showing us the whole gallery you know those don't actually feel like they're made by the same person. Yeah. Does that make sense to me, to you? Like, they like it has that feel when, like, a thing is made by two radically different people. Right. And two radically conflicting ideas. And, and Right, yeah, two, mean, two radically different people who are not collaborating, but wa- rather trying both to make their movie. Right. And, and the describing time. them as radically different is even even very very on the nose here. In yeah. that, again, Melville is French Resistance. That is that is his uh, defining characteristic in his own mind, and uh, he's working with a guy who <laughs> was accused of collaboration. It's yeah, right. who who at the very least was certainly not part of the resistance. At all. Yeah, for sure. I mean, like, at the bare and, minimum. And pretty comfortable. We know that. Pretty comfortable with the situation he found himself in, in Nazi-occupied France. Right. Yeah. Regardless of any other aspect of that, Melville was a prominent person who uh, didn't leave France and didn't, uh, didn't try to fight for France. Or you mean Cocteau? Cocteau, yes, yeah, I'm sorry. Cocteau. Yeah. Melville's essentially, and like, and the weird thing is we've talked about Melville and like whether and how much of that story is real, but like as his sort of defining characteristic or one of them, whether or not that's true or not, that's still the way he has built himself. Right. So like even regardless of the truth of the matter, like that's who he is in, in, in terms at least in public persona. Which does matter when you think about the fact that, like, presumably if he's making that his public persona, he at least does feel that way. You know what I mean? Like, even if he, even if he's sort of jazzing up his personal record, he probably did not like Nazis. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, at the very least, probably not a fan of Nazis. 
Uh, so I did. I did forget about one other weird connection here. Uh, um, Melville has an acting role in yep. Resson's Le Dame de Bois de Boulogne. Oh, okay, yeah. Uh, which All is right. the, the earliest Bresson we've watched and very different from other Bressons. Uh, Cocteau wrote the dialogue for that movie. Um, Weird. Yeah. Uh, I'm just, I'm looking, he also acts in Orpheus, which is probably what you were nodding to, as I said. That's before. what I thought, you, yeah. I thought that's where you were going with yeah. it. Um, the fact that they continue to have a collaboration. <laughs> right. Right. Of some sort that extends into the future, which feels kind of weird also to me. I think as as time went on, I don't know what the plot of The Silence of the Sea is. Um, it is about occupation. Uh, but it, it feels like as time goes on, Melville gets more into actually making movies about the resistance. And that uh-huh. becomes more a part of his overt personality. And maybe that's another aspect of his distancing himself from this. Right, as he gets not further just down that the line, this is a would, yeah. di- different artistically, but but maybe he's making more of a point of being not cock to, uh, as he moves forward too. Right. Uh, yeah, I can see that. That makes sense. Yeah. I don't know. We could speculate about the psychology of the situation. For yeah, forever, for, forever, uh, and and more than likely be wrong. Period. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. It's also just not a very tight movie. Like, why does the sleepwalking se- sequence even exist? It never comes up again. I, I don't know. And she well, very excitedly shares about, it. Though. <laughs> like, like it's all kinds, all kind of feels that way though. Yeah. Like, that's why I keep bringing up the narration because it really right. bothers me because it feels that same way, right? It feels super disjointed. It, it's, I really did not enjoy this movie yeah like i found it very difficult to watch like i never knew why anything was happening (laughs) right like i just was like what am i watching like why are any of these people doing any of the things they're doing and could they be more of a pain in my ass (laughs) because i don't like any of them and i know it's not that i don't like them because their characters are like painted as being bad people i don't get i don't i don't understand yeah any of the people in this film it's more than i dislike i just legitimately can't understand them as people well they do start kind of a free love commune in a manner of speaking so there's that sort (laughs) of right but like not in like a egalitarian interesting way but in a (laughs) Right. Also fair. Kind uh, of a nightmare way, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I just, I really find it, I was really kind of overwhelmed because I couldn't, at no point in time could I, like, put myself in the shoes of any of the characters and like understand where they were coming from. Uh, like I don't understand Paul. Uh, Paul is specifically very enigmatic. 
Yeah. Uh, I don't know what any of his motivations for any of the things he does are. Well, he's also uh, he's also literally a teenager too, right? So, well, and that could be part of the problem. Is that right. like like watching nine hundred two one zero or something like that? When you show me twenty year olds and tell me they're teenagers. I'm still seeing 20-year-olds, and my brain has a little bit of right, a hard time with right. that. Like, I right. can't help it. I know that's on me and not on the movie, that I should be able to suspend my disbelief and things like that. But, like, when you show me 20-year-olds, I can't I, – I expect them to act like 20-year-olds. And these people feel visually like 20-year-olds. You know what I mean? Like, Paul – is a teenager, but when you watch him, you're like, well, there's a 25-year-old man laying in that bed being kind of just annoying. Yeah. Uh, and that's that, for me, that I, I have a hard time with that. I get that and agree with it. <laughs> right. But but I, I do... You know, the character is meant to be a schoolboy uh, yeah. of some age, yeah. of some indiscriminate age. Uh, so, yeah, that's the other thing. The age difference here is very weird. Like, how how much older is the sister meant to be in the narrative? Right. Uh, I don't know. She, <laughs> yeah. Is she also home from school? Was she already home because she was taking care of mom? Like, there's no... I don't necessarily. I don't need a full backstory on these people. It wouldn't be more interesting if I got that. So no, I don't that's know what I'm true. complaining about there. But, but wait, yeah. but like you get into this thing where like not not understanding the motivations of the characters in a lot of ways doesn't get better because you don't know anything. Yeah. And and they we have a lot of narration that just tells you what's happening on screen, but not a lot that explains anything. Um, and it's just really hard to, I, I really had a hard time trying to understand, like, what does Paul want? The sister's motivations later on become more clear. Uh, they, they, the sister actually becomes more comprehensible as the story goes along because you start to understand that her main motivation is just keeping Paul. Like, just making Paul stay in the position that Paul is in. Um, and and that, that attachment is at least a little bit more comprehensible uh, to me. But, I don't know. Even then, it's not super comprehensible. It's just, it is more comprehensible. Apparently, the original novel publication has... Uh dozens of cock-to-drawn captioned cartoons of the action okay. of the, action of the story as well, including the shared bathtub and the shared bed and the snowball fight. I'm looking at them now. Uh, I don't know. It just... it it That also leads me to say that cock is kind of weird for not thinking that this could be visually translated. <laughs> so... Like right. he already, he already had film uh, visual stuff in there. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, but I, I just, think I think that makes you wonder, right? Like, did Katu mean that he can't, it can't be visually translated, or is it nobody will visually translate it the way I want it done? Right. And then he thought he found a young guy he could control. Right. And and very much attempted to control. 
Yeah, for sure. And then it and it and and in times does seem like he was successful in the sense that like we see pretty dramatic shifts into very clearly cocktoo style. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't really know what to make of this. Um <laughs> me neither. I I feel bad though because like uh you get into this weird position where it's like I don't I'm at a real loss with this movie. And I don't these are like probably the hardest episodes to do cuz it's like I don't really know what to say about this. Like I don't I'm kind of devoid of uh of of opinions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cuz yeah. I didn't feel invested enough to form them. Right. And we've never we've never really felt invested. Cock two maybe happened too early for us to feel invested in any of his work. In all the other cock two we've watched, Melville right, we've never yeah. like. Army of Shadows was the first Melville film that I halfway liked, so right, like, um, that we've watched, and yeah, and and again, this is much more cock two than Melville. Oh, period, right? This is not right. this is not a Melville film. By any means, even with his name on it. There's a reason this is more associated with Cock 2, and that's because it is more of a Cock 2 film. Right. Yeah. I'm also, one one other note, I am kind of interested in the amount of times I clearly heard uh, uh, Cock 2's narration say the word chinois, which is French for Chinese, uh, that never got translated as the word Chinese. In the subtitles. Oh, interesting. <laughs> I didn't catch that, but that's uh, interesting. I remember noticing it at least twice, but the only one I can remember the context for is when Paul's setting up his little uh, blanket fort bedroom. The text, uh, the sub, uh, the subtitles uh, of the narration compare it to his own sort of forbidden palace. And I, I think... That the actual narration just says his own sort of Chinese palace. Right. Um, but my French isn't good enough to have caught all of that. Uh, but he, they definitely say the word chinois instead of forbidden palace. Um, so maybe just, just, you know, at the time, maybe the forbidden palace was just known as the Chinese palace to, to right. French audiences. But but there was at least one other instance where I, I distinctly heard Cocteau say chinois and I it wasn't translated as Chinese in the, in the text. And I don't, I don't know what it was. Um, (laughs) but yeah, you know, that's, that's an interesting thing too. Like we, a couple weeks ago with sweet movie, you know, whether, whether the, uh, whether the rich guys named Mr. Capital or Mr. Money depends on your, your translation and your, your subtitles. And, uh, right. Criterion has made some interesting choices to that end that we've talked about before. I remember those conversations. I don't remember the specifics of them. I remember having them. Um, right. And that one, that one's weird. I mean, I'm I'm glad 
to not <laughs> I'm glad that it just says Forbidden Palace instead of whatever the Chinois was because then we'd be having a conf- another conversation about French Orientalism I'm sure but <laughs> which I mean we get plenty of like we're gonna get <laughs> it again don't we worry. got enough that's overt we don't we don't need whatever subtle one this one was doing though the subtle ones are probably more racist than the overt ones yeah I know legitimately uh, that's so. probably true like honestly yeah. they're probably the ones we should be watching out for <laughs> right right uh yeah so we uh this week we've been discussing the first melville film we've encountered where we know melville also didn't like it so there's that (laughs) it's it's a really funny thing to think about honestly oh yeah the the one that melville agrees with us on (laughs) right right uh but yeah uh, his collaboration with Jean Cocteau, Cocteau writing Melville directing Les Enfants Terribles from Cocteau's own novel of the same name. Uh, it's something. It's not something we enjoyed, but it's something. Uh, it is a thing. Yeah. Next week, uh, <laughs> we get to talk about House of Games, the neo-noir uh, by David Mamet. Uh Playwright okay. David Mamet, uh, David Mamet, who uh, every everything you know about uh, uh, Aaron Sorkin's fast talking people are too clever, he apes from David Mamet. So, oh boy, <laughs> so we'll see how that goes. <laughs> but yeah, next week we'll be talking about House of Games from 1987, directed by David Mamet. Uh, look forward to that. So hopefully, it is a better ride than the ride we just took. Uh, talking about Le Enfant Terrible. But uh, thank you once again for listening to Lost and Criterion. I am, as always, Liam Glass. With me, as always, John Patrick Ojari Dorgan, and we'll see you next week. Lost in Criterion, hosted by John Patrick Oatari Dorgan and the Adam Glass, who edits it. We're a production of WithTwoBrains.com. Jonathan Hape does the music. Check him out at JonathanHape.Bandcamp.com. And hey, if you like us, why don't you give us a review on iTunes, like us on Facebook, and support us on Patreon. That's Patreon.com slash Lost in Criterion. We'd appreciate it.